Well, let's read uh, from 1 Samuel 23. We've been going verse by verse through this book. And uh, this is also an important instruction in terms of uh, uh, how to handle troubles in the world. This is the inerrant word of God. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Calah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Calah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Calah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Calah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Calah, so he halted the expedition. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, you have called us to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We value your scriptures, and I pray that as I dig into them, that uh, you would uh, give me the ability to faithfully expound your scriptures and for us uh, to believe them, to embrace them, and to disseminate them ourselves. We love you. We bless you. We continue to worship as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, last week I... By the way, can I wander from this mic? Or can do I, am I parked here? I'm okay. Okay. Um, I will be very stiff if I have to stand still. Um, last week, we looked at the uh, theology of resistance to tyranny and uh, started preaching on that, and I also gave an extended outline for you to do uh, some of your own study on that, 11 pages of small print outline. And uh, then we looked also at the limits to that uh, tyranny. Uh, we saw that uh, without the a permission of some civil magistrate, David was not willing to raise the sword against his own uh, government. And uh, so there are limits that we looked at. Um, and today what I want to do is I want to look at the actual practice of that, um, uh, not only the limits, but also the theology of resistance. And we can see it here on several levels. And 
you know, to be faithful to God's word as a teacher, I simply cannot skip over this passage like most pastors do. They just jump over it onto the next section because they can't figure out any way to tie the gospel in here. But as we've been seeing, uh, God's gospel restores every aspect of creation to its proper order uh, under Christ Jesus. And we're going to begin right at verse uh, 1 of chapter 23. Verse 1 says, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah. They are robbing the threshing floors. Now here was a city appealing to David to use his militia to protect their city against the marauding uh, Philistines. And there are five implications of that first verse that I want to look at. First, the city of Calah did not give David a command. It was an appeal. The reason it wasn't a command is because David was not under Calah's authority, was not under any governmental authority. And this is, uh, becomes even more clear later on. After David and his men are fighting under the city, he still, without any asking any permission, is able to withdraw that uh, militia uh, out from under uh, their, their, their work. This means that involvement in the military was always voluntary. And, of course, the, the law made that very clear. Uh, when America first started the draft, uh, just try to think in your head, if you can take a guess, when that first occurred. It was in the war between the states. The first time that the draft occurred, and there were riots uh, in the south as well as in the north. In fact, um, one author said that the riots in New York over the military draft were, quote, the largest civil insurrection in American history apart from the Civil War itself. How many knew that that was the largest next to the Civil War? Very few people have even heard about this. But back then, it was considered to be voluntary. The, the, a draft? That was uh, an unthinkable concept for them. It was shocking even in the North. The second thing that is implied here, but which the law of God makes quite explicit, and you'll have to look at the outline that I gave to you last week uh, to see that, is that the militia is not owned by the state and it kept its coherence when it was fighting for the state. Okay, we should not think of militias as being portions of the state. They are, the militia is the citizens armed. In, in Israel, uh, the, the, the militia uh, for ancient Israel were simply voluntary groupings of men who voluntarily trained together to prepare themselves to voluntarily fight the enemy and um, they operated under their own elected leader whom they knew and whom they respected. They had nothing to do with the government, though, of course, the government called upon them to please come and uh, fill in the ranks of the army as regulars or as irregulars. Uh, but um, uh, it, the Scripture does indicate that if it was a just war that the government was involved in, the militias had a moral duty to uh, join that army and to, to be a part of the fighting, uh, though in the book of Judges you see many times the militia just ignore, uh, ignored these uh, appeals to help. And uh, yet even that uh, ignoring of the appeals of the government shows again that they were uh, really, uh, they had an independent character. And this is why David and his whole militia can leave the city of Calah later on in this passage, even though they have been fighting under a civil magistrate. You see, the voluntary association with that particular government entity does not mean they lose their rights, that they suddenly become slaves and now the government can command them around any way that he wants. No, they had the, uh, the, the, the ability to 
uh, disband from the army. And the same was true in early America. There's all kinds of examples of this, but I want to first of all show how for most of America's history it followed the definition of militia, not modern definition, but the definition of militia that you find in the Scriptures. United States Code, Title 10, Article 311 stated, the militia of the United States consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age. It was not a select group that was somehow organized by the government. It was all males 17 years of age or older. That was written in 1792 by the same people who wrote the Second Amendment. And so I don't think you could get a more clear statement. Now, some people say, no, it's not so clear because if you look at the Second Amendment... It says that there is a need for a well-regulated militia. Does that not imply that the government has to regulate all of the militias? And I say, absolutely no. Read Justice Stories. He's the chief justice uh, in early America. Read his commentary on the Constitution or read the Federalist Papers or the Anti-Federalist Papers or just about any of the founding fathers and what they said about that. And you'll see what they wanted was a well-disciplined citizenry who knew how to form rank, knew how to fight, knew the techniques that were involved to go into battle or to protect uh, their neighborhoods. And so David's militia was a well-regulated militia, even though they were not under the control of the civil government whatsoever. So don't confuse what the militia is today with what it has been in most of America's history. The militia is the people armed. Uh, George Mason of Virginia, who was one of the authors of the Second Amendment, said, I ask, sir, what is the militia? It is the whole people, except for a few public officials. Again, as explicit as you can get. Uh, even the horrible 1939 Supreme Court uh, 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 case of U.S. v. Miller supports this. Even as late as 1939, they were continuing to say this. Uh, there they said that the Second Amendment was designed to empower the common citizen to own uh, weapons. It was not designed to empower the government. The court said these show plainly enough that the militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense a body of citizens enrolled for military discipline. And further, that ordinarily, when called for service, these men were expected to appear bearing arms supplied by themselves and of the kind in common use at the time. So never think of militias as sort of state tools. They are the citizens armed. And that's why it was perfectly legitimate for David uh, to have these 600 men in the militia. They didn't have to ask permission for this. Uh, now, keep in mind last week's sermon that David respected the limits to the right to use uh, that militia or that right to resist. We are not talking about anarchy. We're not talking about revolution. David refused to raise the sword against a civil magistrate except under two conditions. Another civil magistrate authorized him to do so, or he became a civil magistrate, such as uh, when, it he was under, uh, when he was the mayor of Ziklag. So don't take this uh, sermon out of context of what we have said. There are some militias in America that do not follow the biblical principles. I don't want to be lumped in with them, okay? Now, of course, tyrants, they don't care about such fine distinctions as things like that. Uh, tyrants like Saul did not want David armed, and he didn't want any militia. He wanted to be in total control of anybody that was in any way connected to the military. As far back as 1995... Uh, the uh, United States has attempted to keep two or more people from being able to train for military purposes, which is the whole purpose of a militia. 
uh, but it was um, H.R. 1544, uh, an act that would have kept two people from going out into a farmer's field and plinking. I mean, it was a crazy bill. It's changed its name to the Domestic Insurgency Act, and thankfully it's not made any progress. At least let me know if it has. I don't think it's made any progress. But I say thankfully because the right for people to train in order to defend their own house and their own communities is not only a God-given right, it's a Second Amendment right, and our founding fathers in America considered it a moral duty for citizens to be prepared for any kinds of difficulties or trials that might come along. Now, there's a third implication of this first verse, and it is that Kayla preferred to call David rather than to call King Saul. That's very, very interesting. Now, it may have been that King Saul, they tried to call him, and he wasn't interested, or he was too busy, or whatever, but it doesn't matter. The same point is made. When you're in trouble in your neighborhood, you don't tend to call standing army, right? Uh, you got to be able to protect yourselves within that community. Standing armies need to be highly centralized, highly controlled, if they're to be an invading army. And, of course, that's why Israel said they didn't want to have standing armies. And that's why our founding fathers put even into the Constitution there should not be a standing army because they didn't want us interfering in every nation's uh, issues. They wanted it only for self-defense. And even when they had a, uh, an army uh, for a defense, it was not centralized. I was reading Chief Justice Story's commentary on the Constitution this past Wednesday, and he said this, The importance of this article, the Second Amendment, will scarcely be doubted by any persons who have duly reflected upon the subject. Apparently they didn't have liberals back then. Or at least if they did, they didn't, he didn't think they had duly reflected on the subject. But he said, The importance of this article, the Second Amendment, will scarcely be doubted by any persons who have duly reflected upon the subject. The militia is the natural defense of a free country against, and notice the three categories that he said it defended against, against sudden foreign invasions, domestic insurrections, and domestic usurpation of powers by our rulers. It is against sound policy for a free people to keep up large military establishments and standing armies in time of peace, both from the enormous expenses with which they are attended and the facile means which they afford to ambitious and unprincipled rulers to subvert the government or trample upon the rights of the people. The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers and will generally, if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. And then he goes on in that paragraph to complain that Americans have grown soft and lazy and they just expect the government to protect them from everybody instead of protecting themselves. And just a story, if you read his article, he's in effect saying, we need to have leaders in every community doing exactly what David uh, was doing in this passage and starting well-disciplined militias to defend local communities against the attacks of tyrants, whether those tyrants are people coming from outside the country like the Philistines in verse 1, or whether they're local tyrants uh, of your own country, as in verses 7 and following. Historians credit local militias with saving Washington's bacon over and over again. 
Uh, their very decentralization was an asset in many ways because they knew the county better than anybody else. They were able to outmaneuver the British. They were able to give good advice to Washington. They were able to go in there, harass the enemy, instantly disappear. And uh, they were a tremendous asset. In fact, in some parts of the country, the unaffiliated militias, okay, these were private, unaffiliated militias did more fighting against the British than the Continental Army did. Libby described their efforts in Bergen County, New Jersey, saying how seldom any Continentals ventured down into the really dangerous part of the neutral ground when the British were near. While the Bergen County militia daily risked brushes with Sir Henry's raiders from New York, all too many Continentals did not hear a gun fired in battle from one year to the next. In other words, he's saying these militias have not been given the kind of credit that they are due in the history books. He said they were very, very involved, that we would not have won that, that war apart from them. Uh, William F. Marina said the militia, as one would expect, chose to follow their elected leaders whom they knew and in whom they had confidence rather than simply any officer sent by the Continental Army. Now, we've lost that history. We tend to trust the, okay, the police are going to protect us or the federal government's going to protect us. But what do you do when the police are not present or the federal government's not present when there's rioting like happened in the L.A. riots or when there's a Hurricane Katrina? Well, the neighborhoods get together. They defend themselves. That's what you do. Now, unfortunately, the federal government, I don't think, wants the neighborhoods defending themselves because when they came after Katrina came through, what do they do in New Orleans? They didn't disarm the criminals. They came and disarmed all the citizen, honest citizens, you know, house to house, and prevented them from doing the very thing the Second Amendment uh, says that they ought to be able to do. In early America, local communities were expected to depend, defend themselves, not depend upon the army, which simply could not be everywhere. I know one county in Florida where the sheriff believes this and is encouraging all of the local males to be well-trained in defending their neighborhoods from the vicious gangs. And there are some incredibly vicious gangs that are starting to take over towns and attack neighborhoods. At some point, America needs to return to this principle. Now, point D is another reason why Kayla asked for David rather than for Saul. It's because David could respond in a much more timely manner. Uh, why were the militias so respected in early America? It's because they could respond to the needs much more quickly than the Continental Army could. Let me give you one example. Washington ordered several regular army units to capture Fort Lee, which had been taken by the Loyalists. And Marina says, before the army could make such preparations, the word arrived that the militia had taken the fort. Uh, in the book of Judges, you see this over and over again. The militias uh, were able to travel, to respond to the needs very, very quickly. And when the army needed them, they were able to come to one place. Uh, it was one, in one case, it was in one or two days. It's just remarkable how quickly they were able to travel. Since they were prepared, they were trained, uh, notifying them uh, was the, the, the only thing that was necessary. And because they're scattered throughout the nation, it doesn't matter which part of the country that other nations might attack, there are people right there ready to defend their own communities. Now, the last implication of verse 1 is that militias were extremely helpful in preventing gangs from taking over the country. The Philistines knew that Saul's army was way to the north, and so they figured Kayla is easy pickings. That was a bad assumption because there were a whole bunch of people like David 
uh, who uh, were freedom-loving patriots, who were quite willing to fight, and knew how to fight quite well. And if everyone had David's views on self-defense, it would be a lot harder for gangs to take over the towns in the southwest and Florida uh, like they've been doing. In fact, police don't even want to go into some neighborhoods, and I don't blame them. And if those neighborhoods are to be taken back, it's got to be the people who take them back, preferably, ideally, the neighborhoods doing it in cooperation with a local sheriff, just like David did it in cooperation uh, with the city of Cala. Now, unfortunately, there are not too many sheriffs who think that way nowadays. But what I would encourage you guys to do is give literature to these sheriffs, instruct them, you know, teach them, uh, give them some of the history of the use of arms in America. Now, we're going to move a little bit faster now, but if you look at verse 2, it says, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. Now, there's two things I want to highlight from this verse. And the first one is, God himself authorized everything I've just talked about. I'm not preaching on this because I love American history. I'm preaching on this because God teaches on this, okay? God is interested in all of life. If God was just interested in the things most people preach on from the pulpit, just, you know, evangelism and, and uh, you know, giving your money to the church and a few things like that, you could throw out four-fifths of the Bible, But God is interested in all of life, and the Scriptures address all of life, including civics. And it's very important that preachers start uh, teaching people how to think biblically in these uh, areas of life. God kept 1 Samuel 23 in the Bible, along with a whole bunch of other passages on, on militias that I gave in your outline last week. He put those in the Bible because he knows in our canon we need it even today. We still need that. Um, Paul said that the whole Old Testament was written for us, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It continues to be relevant for us. Now, let me just give you some examples of how this would be relevant. If Christian neighborhoods in Rwanda, Africa, had neighborhood watches that were armed, that's all militias are, they're neighborhood watches. That's pretty innocent, isn't it? Neighborhood watches that are armed. If they had had that, It could have saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who were massacred. There's no way they would have been able to be massacred if they had followed the biblical advice on this. If Cambodian lovers of liberty had organized as militias, the Khmer Rouge would not have been able to massacre three million people. How could a little tiny army massacre three million people? Because they weren't organized to defend themselves. They were just wiped out. And... uh, Though America is still one of the safest countries to live in, it is very possible that things could fall apart through a terrorist attack against us, through a nuclear bomb. It's very possible that we could have riots in the various cities where police couldn't be everywhere. You would have to be able to defend yourself. It is very possible that we could have a situation where, you know, maybe one of the vicious gangs from El Salvador would take over the city, completely overrun uh, the police Uh, in the city. Police cannot be everywhere, and the Scripture expected people to know how to defend their own castles, to defend their own houses. And uh, so the first application from verse 2 is that God himself authorized David's militia. The second thing I want to point out is that David was not a crazy man looking for a battle. 
Okay? He was a peace-loving guy. He's not a bloodthirsty person. Uh, he only fought when it was absolutely necessary. And so we see the first of two times that he asked God, should we really do this, Lord? Uh, I, I want to be following your guidance on this, Lord. He didn't deliberately stir up strife or look for a fight. But at the same time, he's grieved when he sees liberties being taken away. And he's willing to sign up with the army under Kalo's uh, oversight, it was a government official there, and fight for the freedoms of those people. Now, point three. We next see two good questions that we should ask when we seek to resist tyranny. First question may seem a little bit pragmatic. Verse three. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kalah against the armies of the Philistines? They were, in effect, asking, are we going to have success or is this a crazy thing that we're getting ourselves into? Is this going to be a foolish move? And it's a very worthwhile question to ask. In Luke 14, Jesus said, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? It's exactly the same question. Will we be successful? Jesus authorized us to ask that question. He goes on, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So what these guys are asking is not a bad question. Will we be successful or is this going to be a totally foolish move? The moves some people do in the name of liberty, in the name of freedom, are suicidal. They're foolish. They're not going to lead to liberty. They're going to lead to you being wiped out. And so it's important that we ask questions like this. Is this the best strategy? Remember we laid out last time a theology of resistance. There's all kinds of different ways that you can resist. And you should start with the peaceful methods first before you ever go to the non-peaceful one. Now, the second question is far more important than this first one, and it is this. Has God led us to do this? Very important question. Verse 4, Then David inquired of the Lord once again. So he's double-checking. He's saying, Wow, Lord, this really does seem like a risky move. Are you sure you're sending us in here? Which, by the way, shows he took the counsel of his men very seriously. Because they're questioning. You know, this seems a little bit foolish. So he goes back to the Lord and he double checks uh, on this. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Cala, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. A man who is walking close to God is a tremendous advantage. And these people, they trusted his leadership and they were willing to follow him. But both of those questions that I've just gone over show that we need to approach this whole subject with a great degree of caution, a great degree of caution. Now, David is convinced that God wants him to do this patriotic thing, to fight for the freedoms of his countrymen. So take a look at verse 5. David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. Now, we cannot forget that this is not a governmental army that saved the city. This is a private militia that saved the city by God's authorization. Now, let me answer a question that somebody asked me last week. Somebody said, okay, you can only raise the government against uh, 
a government official, if a magistrate has authorized you to do so, would it be okay for David to have fought against these Philistines if the city of Calah had not asked him to, had not authorized? And actually the answer is yes. Uh, he would not have been able to raise the sword against his own government or he would not have been able to independently declare war. But this case is uh, different for two reasons. First of all, Saul had declared war and God had declared war against the Philistines. They were in a battle and during battle situations, according to the law of God, everybody in the nation had the right to fight against uh, the, the, the Philistines and to destroy him. Even a, a woman who is not part of the army, right? Even a woman like Jael, remember she pounded that tent peg through the, the, the skull of uh, Sisera? God praises her. Why? Because the whole of Israel was at war. So you don't have to ask permission. They're already at war. He could do it. It's been authorized. The war has been authorized by a civil magistrate. But secondly, these Philistines were akin to the drug gangs that have been coming across the border in uh, Texas and uh, raping and, and uh, killing, murdering people. And the outline that I gave last week gives all kinds of scriptures that indicate you can defend yourself against those kinds of thugs. So if America was bordering Philistia, and I happen to be living you know, near the border, and uh, the Philistines are coming over the border, so that, number one, they're out of their jurisdiction, right? They're coming over the border into my town. They're looting. They're killing. I don't have to ask the government's permission to shoot back. Of course, uh, you can defend yourself and you can defend your neighbors and you can defend your property. Okay, point five indicates that pastors weren't averse to being part of a militia. Verse six says, Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Calah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. So here is a priest with the, 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 the guidance of God. That's what an ephod was for. Here is a priest who's fighting alongside of David and going everywhere that David went. Okay? And uh, this too shows we are living in such a different age than they did back then. Now, uh, in the first American War for Independence, they bought into that 100%. They had no problem. There were so many pastors who fought against the British in the first war for American independence that um, they took on the name the Black Regiment. And it was a black regiment because they wore these black robes. That was their pastor's uh, garments back then. And uh, some of you may remember the story of Peter Muhlenberg. Uh, there's a statue of him, United States Capitol Building, and on his last day to preach in his pulpit, he uh, preached, this was in 1775, he preached a powerful sermon on the duty of citizens to resist tyranny, and he ended with Ecclesiastes uh, ch chapter 3, which speaks of there being a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, time to kill, a time to heal. I won't read the whole passage, but it ends by saying a time of war and a time of peace. And he said, there is a time to fight, and that time is now. And he took off his preacher's garment, and underneath uh, he was wearing a Virginia colonel's uh, uh, uniform, and he called for the drums to beat at the door uh, after the service, and almost every male in that church signed up to fight under his standard. It was over 300 men who signed up on that day to fight uh, under his standard. He became one of Washington's 
primary brigadier generals in the Continental Army. Now, there were other pastors, and they have marvelous stories as well, who didn't fight in the army. They fought with their militias as needed and continued to pastor their flocks and did some phenomenal things as well. Now, these pastors in Muhlenberg have been criticized by pastors today who don't have the testosterone of Muhlenberg, and... uh, they say, oh, that's wrong, you know, pastors shouldn't be involved in that. Let me tell you something, Abiathar is an example that what uh, Muhlenberg did is absolutely right. It was good. It was authorized by God. Now, the second thing that I want to point out is Saul's lack of zeal to defend Israel against the true enemies, the Philistines, has total lack of zeal, and his incredible zeal to kill David. Why? David was a threat to him. The Philistines were a threat to the people, and uh, so he has things backwards there. In fact, it makes you wonder if the BATFE took their cues in Katrina, uh, you know, from King Saul. Uh, So we see apathy with regard to good, and we see zeal with regard to bad. It's such a stark contrast on paper that it's shocking, and yet it's a constant reality in politics. Try to get the government to be concerned about illegals coming over the border, and especially all of the criminal illegals coming over the border, ah, they'll yawn, you know, it's really not that important of an issue. But try to get them uh, to be supportive of patriotic militias and Minutemen who are down there trying to patrol or to get all of the citizens armed. Oh, all of a sudden you're a freak, you know. They're, they're very alarmed about you. They're not alarmed about the criminals co- coming illegally across the border. Everything is backwards today. And so that, that's my insert into your outline. That wasn't in the outline. Uh, it's kind of a rabbit trail. But the first point, that's A, point A, which really probably should be point C now. Uh, a centralized resistance can be quickly overwhelmed, and Saul knew it. It's one of the disadvantages of saying, oh, everything needs to be controlled by the government. No, no, no. It's automatically going to be centralized, and it can be very quickly overwhelmed. He saw David as a bird in a cage. Now, David is willing to stay there if Kayla was willing to, to back him up. But there's a maxim here that highlights one of the benefits of a mobile resistance. A walled town, while giving some protection, can become a trap. And Saul knew it. Second disadvantage of centralized resistance such as David had was that the enemy has the time to bring a massive army that can outnumber you. Uh, verse 8. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Calah, besiege David and his men. Saul called out every regiment, every militia that he could muster to lay siege to this city. He wanted to so overwhelm David that there was no way that David could uh, escape. And so David's hesitation, Lord, do I stay and fight or do I leave, is all the more remarkable when you see he knows how many people are coming down against him. It shows remarkable courage on his part. Now, it's true, that city was well fortified, had big walls. In fact, if you read history, you'll see that the city of Cala was a strategic city in many of the different uh, wars between various empires down through history. And so David, starting his base of operations at Cala, it makes sense Uh, in terms of military strategy. It made uh, great sense, and I think he was hoping... If Kayla was a magistrate who was willing to be behind him, that he would be able to begin his offensive against Saul and uh, rid the people uh, of that tyranny. Uh, so David is still 
he's more concerned about God's guidance than he is with the odds. The odds were not as important to him because he has seen God win with small minorities against huge majorities over and over again in the past. In fact, at the end of his life, it was Absalom who called out the whole of Israel against him, and he has hardly anything, and yet he won the battle. Now, the main reason I'm bringing this up is that some people like to congregate in regions of the country where they can have a mass of patriots. Now, while I respect that position, and you can appeal to periods in David's later life where there's a wisdom there, you still need to realize what the disadvantages are. They need to be considered. Now, point seven... Let's begin at verse 9. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And this is one of the things you see over and over again in David's life. He seeks the will of God. Uh, Once again, this is an absolute foundation for keeping out of trouble during troublous times. Verse 10, then David said, O Lord God of Israel, Your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city for my sake. Now, at this point, Calah is his city. It's identified with him. And so to destroy David, you'd have to destroy Calah. Unless, of course, Calah became treacherous and turned David over to Saul in order to protect their own skin. Verse 11, he says, Will the men of Calah deliver me into his hand? Now, why does he ask that question when he knows that Saul is coming against him? I believe he asks it because he is willing to stay and to fight if Calah will stand behind him. This shows courage. And it also illustrates one of the exceptions that we saw to last week's principle. The sword can be raised against a magistrate if another magistrate interposes himself between the tyrant and yourself. And so basically what David is asking is this, Lord, will Calah engage in civil interposition... Or are they going to turn me over uh, to King Saul? Now, because you've probably, some of you have never heard the word interposition, I want to uh, define that term. To interpose means simply to come between two people or two bodies of people. And really, this is a word that is absolutely at the heart of our salvation. Uh, we wouldn't even have any salvation if there was not interposition. For example, in the, hymn, the hymn writer Robert Robertson, in his hymn book, Come thou fount of every blessing. You know that. Well, come thou fount of every blessing. He talks about interposition in that one. He says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. If you look that hymn up in liberal hymn books, they always take that verse out. They hate the doctrine of interposition. Why? Because it implies that God has wrath against us. They don't want to think of God as having wrathful. No, he's a loving God who just sweeps all sin under the carpet. But really, interposition was at the very heart. Jesus very literally came between the wrath of God and us. He spared us from eternal judgment. And so this doctrine of civil interposition really ought to have at its foundation this Christocentric idea that Jesus, we need to look to Jesus to interpose on our behalf, and we'll sing a psalm afterwards that does that, not just as Savior, but to interpose himself as judge, uh, protecting his people as well. We've got to sing and pray the imprecatory uh, psalms. But let's now define civil interposition. Here's a definition from Black's Law Dictionary. Interposition, the doctrine that a state, in the exercise of its sovereignty 
may reject a mandate of the federal government deemed to be unconstitutional or to exceed the powers delegated to the federal government. Uh, Later on it says, the concept is based on the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, reserving to the states powers not delegated to the United States. Historically, the doctrine emanated from Chisholm v. Georgia, 2 Dallas 419, wherein the state of Georgia, when sued in the Supreme Court by a private citizen of another state, entered a remonstrance and declined to recognize the court's jurisdiction. Amendment 11 validated Georgia's position. Implementation of the doctrine may be peaceable, as by resolution, remonstrance, or legislation, or may proceed ultimately to nullification with forcible resistance, unquote. So he's saying you can have peaceful forms of interposition, you can have non-peaceful forms of interposition. And this really is the middle ground that we were looking at last week that keeps you from the, the extremes. The one extreme is to be a doormat, just passively lets tyrants just run over everything. You don't resist at all. The other is everybody's resisting doing that which is right in his own eyes, and it's absolute chaos that happens. This is really the middle uh, road between there. And I mentioned last week, America's first war for independence was not technically a revolution. It was lawfully uh, established, elected uh, magistrates who interposed themselves between their citizens and the tyranny of King George. Now, if you look through the book of Judges, you will see that every judge was engaged in interposition and he raised the sword against a higher magistrate. When the parliament in England executed King Charles, was it King Charles? Yeah, executed King Charles, they were engaging in lawful interposition. Uh, there are many, uh, there's peaceful methods. Uh, recently, when the uh, federal, uh, one of the federal courts declared Obamacare to be unconstitutional, that's interposition. Another form of interposition is when 26 states have sued the federal government saying that Obamacare is unconstitutional. That's another form of interposition. It can be upwards, downwards, sideways, so many different ways. Let me give you some biblical examples. When Jonathan warned David to flee from his father because his father was going to kill him, he was engaging in an interposition to protect David's life. He interposed himself between dad and David, and God blessed him for that. Uh, In 1 Kings 12, when Jeroboam led the northern ten tribes in secession from the south's grossly tyrannical taxation, God said he approved of that interposition. And when the south tried to fight against it by trying to force the north back into the union, uh, God sent a prophet to warn the king, King Rehoboam of the south, don't do that. He says, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. It was one of the rare times that the North was right in almost any conflict in the world. (laughs) The North seceded, (laughs) and God enshrined the right of secession in that passage. And interestingly, it was over taxation, the same reason why the South seceded. By the way, there are some people who just think, you can't secede. And by the way, that war declares nobody else can secede. That is to make the state a god. The state has no powers, according to Romans 13, that God himself has not given. And um, 
If you say that the states cannot secede, you have to say that America is illegitimate because we seceded on the same principles from King George, exactly the same principles. In fact, this is the secession of the southern states. It is identical, identical to the secession that 1 Kings 12 uh, 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 describes and that God authorized. In 1 Kings 18, when Jezebel was killing all of the true prophets, Obadiah hid 100 of them in two different caves and fed and clothed them. Now, it's true, he was a lower magistrate, but that's the kind of interposition any citizen could engage in. In fact, the church would not have survived behind the Iron Curtain or behind the Bamboo Curtain if Christians weren't hiding people from the government. Okay? You, it would have been wiped out. And some people say, oh, man, you can't, you can't do anything illegal. You can't smuggle Bibles. Read the Scripture. You're getting your ideas from a secular press. You're not getting them from the Bible. Uh, we have an example of an attempted interposition by Joab when David sought to number Israel. Joab was absolutely offended, and rightly so, because the Bible, God was offended. He judged David over this. And so here is one kind of interposition that Joab tried to engage in. He argued with David. He said, you cannot do this. He tried to convince David otherwise. That's interposition. Now, he was not successful. It says the word of David prevailed. So he goes out. He starts numbering Israel. But after a while, he's so disgusted with this, he stops. He refuses to continue numbering. That's another kind of interposition that's been engaged in by magistrates all over America where a state or a federal government has given some kind of a mandate and they just say, well, fine, he's mandated. I'm not going to implement it. And sheriffs and states and others can engage in that kind of interposition. Second Chronicles 21.10 records the successful revolt and secession of the city of Libna from Judah. Now, the interesting thing about that is it was a Levitical city of refuge. In other words, it was priests uh, who were in that uh, city. They could not bear the apostasy of King Jehoram, and so the city officials interposed themselves for, uh, between their citizens and the tyranny. They said, we're an independent state. They were successful. They never did come back into the Union. And so they really became a city of refuge for people who were fleeing from Judah's tyranny and wanted to go into a place that had freedom. Second Chronicles 26.20 records 80 valiant priests who literally shoved, pushed King Uzziah out of the temple when he came in with an incense thing, overstepping his jurisdiction. Churches need to do this. When the state comes and says what the church can preach on, what it may not preach on, they must resist that. And we are faithless if we refuse to resist that. In fact, it has just really disgusted me when abortionists and other uh, people in public, of, uh, in, in, in public office who have violated the laws of God have not been excommunicated by the churches that they have been members of. If we started having public officials being excommunicated, cast into the kingdom of darkness until they repented, we might start seeing some changes for the better uh, in America. But that's one kind of interposition. Let me give you two examples of private citizens engaging in interposition. Rahab. When Rahab hid those spies, she was interposing herself between the soldiers and these spies to protect them. And God praises her for that. You may remember from last week the case of David. Uh, he and his soldiers um, went to try to kill Nabal, who was a wicked man, no doubt about it. Abigail comes, intercedes, 
and he relents. He realizes what he was doing was wrong, and he praises her for her interposition and sparing his hands from murder. So even godly magistrates can sometimes unwittingly overstep their jurisdiction, and citizens need to interpose themselves and say, we're not standing up for this kind of thing, or appealing, or begging, any way of getting those magistrates uh, off track uh, from what they're doing. So what David is asking here is not strange at all. If Kayla had more men of David's character, they would have interposed themselves and resisted the tyranny of Saul. And down through history, lower magistrates have done this over and over again. We would not have a Protestant Reformation if it had not been for civil magistrates willing to interpose themselves uh, to protect uh, the Protestants who were in their countries. We would, not have, uh, we would not have been able to have that. And the Protestants nowadays who say, oh, yeah, we can't talk about subjects like that. Those are too comp- controversial. The hypocrites are enjoying the freedoms that came from those magistrates who interposed themselves. The magistrates, like the colonialists, who interposed themselves against the tyranny of King George, or the princes of Germany who interposed themselves against the tyranny of the emperor, or other magistrates in Switzerland and Holland and many other countries. And so these guys have the right to disagree with me on this doctrine of interposition only because people have interposed themselves on their behalf. Okay, do you get the point there? This is, this is not a strange doctrine. This is an essential doctrine for the survival of the church of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand it. David continues praying. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And that brings up point eight, that there are limits to our use of a militia. Militias can be used on behalf of magistrates uh, to overturn the tyranny of a King George. They can be used on behalf of magistrates to secede like the South did. But if there's no magistrate who's willing to stand up for right, David's militia had no choice but to flee. No choice. Verse 13. So, and you could translate that as therefore, in light of this revelation, so David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Calah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Calah, so he halted the expedition. Now, from this verse, we have an illustration of the fact that militias cannot declare war on their own. Okay? They cannot overturn government on their own. They can only do it um, if a lawfully ordained civil magistrate authorizes the war. And the fact that he was the head of the militia does not make him the head of a state. There is a division of powers and function between militias and the government. Militias can serve the government. They can serve under the government. But they're not a government within a government. Militias can train, be prepared for war. David shows the militias can even flee from the government. But they may not resist government without some government approval. Now, because I dealt with this extensively last week, I wanted you to really understand the limits of resistance. I'm not going to deal with it anymore under point eight. But the same verse shows that David's militia could frustrate the mighty army of Saul. That's very interesting. He has only 600 men, but despite the fact that Saul had an overwhelmingly superior force, he gave up his expedition. That's what it says in the text there. He gave it up. He knew it was pretty useless to try to continue to pursue after David. And this shows the power of an armed citizenry. It shows the power 
of a mobile militia. One of David's strategies uh, later on in this book is to try to, with his militia, make um, alignments with various city civil magistrates throughout Judah. And as there is a momentum that is building, it provided the opportunity for Judah and Simeon to secede from the north and for him to to have a base of operations from which uh, he could function. Another strategy that he had was to model to the other militias what it means for a militia to have self-control under tyranny, the whole subject of last week's sermon. And what we see in the upcoming chapters is militia after militia joining the ranks of David until he finally ends up with quite an army. But maintaining his militia rather than disbanding it was absolutely key to that success. So even within the limits that the Scripture gives to the use of a militia, it can be a very strategic tool when national unity crumbles. This is the only thing that kept the Reformed Protestant Church from being wiped off the face of the map in France. Um, the, the Reformed people there were called Huguenots, and uh, they were being, the, the, the Roman Catholics were trying to kill them off. And so what they were doing is they were networking militias all over France, networking with magistrates who authorized them to fight against the king, and they were incredibly successful, with, which brought them to a place where finally the king was willing to negotiate a peace treaty. Now, unfortunately, these Huguenots who didn't have deceitful hearts, they trusted a politician's word. <laughs> they trusted the king to keep his word of safe conduct. And if they had not done that, France would have become a Protestant nation because the rightful heir to the throne really sided with the Huguenots. But because of the treachery of the queen mother, Catherine, what a wicked woman, because of her treachery, these guys thought they had complete safe passage. They laid down their arms, bad move. They went into the city of Paris, and between August, let me get the dates here, August 23 and September 17, just a few days, and most of it in the first two days, over 25,000 Reformed Protestants, most of the leaders of the whole movement, were killed. Over 25,000 just in Paris alone. Now, the king ordered every man, woman, and child of the Huguenots to be slain throughout the country, and uh, it's probably well over 100,000 Huguenots that were slain uh, in, in, uh, in France because of the treachery of uh, King Charles and Queen, uh, Queen Mother Catherine. What's so ghastly about this is the Pope celebrated it. He put on a special mass, a special celebration. He minted a special coin to celebrate the massacre uh, of the Huguenots. Uh, he, he loved this. And uh, so they, there were many Huguenots that were very afraid in France. Over 300,000 Huguenots fled. And these were, it, it robbed France because these were the artisans, uh, some of the most skilled people in the nation. They fled to countries all over the world, including to America. By the way, Paul Revere, he was one of the descendants of the Huguenots who had fled to that country. He knew his theology of resistance. He knew the practice of resistance. Most Americans did at, at that time. This is as American as motherhood and apple pie. Okay, this is not some strange doctrine. But within France, not all of the Huguenots fled. There were militias who stayed put. They said, we're going to stay here and fight for the freedoms of the people who were left behind. There were magistrates who stayed. And they resisted so successfully that eventually the king was forced uh, to sign a treaty. 
and it, it gave. But if it had not been for those militias maintaining their presence there, every man, woman, and child might have been wiped off the face of the map, just like in Cambodia. Just a minority of people were able to kill three million citizens. And so this is not a, a silly thing. This is something that's very, very important. Uh, you know, there's many countries. Uh, the Turks killed millions of, uh, of Christians. Why? Because they were not armed. They were not uh, engaged in self-defense. They didn't understand these biblical principles. Uh, there were a slaughter of people in, in, in many other countries as well. Uh, and I could have used stories from other Protestant countries because the Reformers understood this doctrine. They understood it. They practiced it. Now, of course, resisting a tyrannical government is not the only use for neighborhood militia. Its main use was to protect the neighborhood from criminals. This is point number 10. Sure, tyrants fear militias, but the criminals fear them even more. Um, we're going to be seeing in later chapters that the main use for David's militia within Judah in these upcoming chapters was to help the locals to fight off thieves, bandits, and Philistine robbers. Let me tell you the story of Kennesaw, Georgia. In 2007, the Family Circle magazine picked that town as one of the nation's, quote, 10 best towns for families. Now keep that in your mind. Kennesaw, Georgia, one of the 10 best towns for families. It's a very family-friendly town. Now it wasn't always that way. Back in 1982, it was rife with crime. There was all kinds of problems with crime, and it was so serious that the city passed an ordinance. Let me read the ordinance for you, section 3421. In order to provide for the emergency management of the city, ooh, I'm always scared when we're, you know, there's any laws that start with that because you immediately think big government's going to come. Okay, but that didn't happen here. Amazingly, it didn't happen. It says, in order to provide for the emergency management of the city, and further, in order to provide for and protect the safety, security, and general welfare of the city and its inhabitants, every head of household residing in the city limits is required to maintain a firearm together with ammunition, therefore. Exempt from the effect of this section are those heads of households who suffer a physical or mental disability, which would prohibit them from using such a firearm. Further exempt from the effect of this section are those heads of households who are paupers or who conscientiously oppose maintaining firearms as a result of beliefs or religious doctrine or persons convicted of a felony. So they had to exempt uh, those in order to you know, not be challenged in court. But wow, was there a fury uh, unleashed upon Kennesaw, Georgia. The liberals were just livid. They said, you know, all of these kids are going to be dying in accidents and uh, crime is going to increase. Actually, the exact opposite uh, happened. Now, next year is going to be the 30th anniversary of that great decision to arm all the citizens and, in effect, to reestablish the old doctrine that the citizens are the militia. It's not a part of government. The citizens are the militia. What happened? Despite the population growing from 5,000 to just under 30,000 in the last 30 years, crime dropped. Now, that doesn't happen. You look across the states at any city in which population is growing, you don't see crime falling. Well, there are some, and I'll give you some exceptions in a bit. But the first year after this, was, um, this, this uh, law came into effect, Crimes against persons dropped 74%. The next year, they dropped another 45%. And I've looked at the statistics since that time. And when you combine the growth 
of that, uh, that town, with the decrease in crime, you realize criminals don't like to pick on houses that are well-armed. Uh, they, just, they just didn't seem to pick on Kennesaw citizens. Case closed. Now, let me end by saying that militias are a good magistrate's best friend. They are men who are trained and prepared to do whatever a magistrate commands them to do in the interests of liberty and God's law. They are a magistrate's best friend. Magistrates should not be afraid to do what Kennesaw, Georgia did. There are other towns with similar success stories. And if these citizens would be encouraged to train to defend liberties, they would be a magistrate's best friend. I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 5. And we're going to take a look at this. The whole book of Judges shows the critical role that the militias uh, have played in the fight for liberty. But uh, take a look at Judges chapter 5. Each time a judge came along, he would call for the militias to support him. Sometimes they all came together. Sometimes certain militias refused to do so. And if you start at verse 14, we're going to be looking at Deborah praising some militias, rebuking others for failing to send units. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin with your peoples. I want you to notice the plural peoples there because there was a breakdown of units within the tribe uh, of Benjamin. From Machir, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. Now, because militias were well-organized, well-disciplined, we find that in the book of Judges, a recruiter could raise every militia in Israel in a matter of days with the recruiter's staff. This is the brilliance of the biblical system. You don't have to wait a month for the central army to come marching into your town. No, in a matter of days, you've got the protection. Actually, you had the protection already because uh, you at least had some uh, form of resistance happening at a local level. And then he goes on. He says, And the princes of Issachar, notice the plural commanders within this tribal state, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah as Issachar so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. But now comes a listing of some militias, even entire states, that did not offer their services. Now that is a right that they reserved to themselves, but the Bible says it was, a, it was sinfully exercised right, selfishly exercised right. Verse 16b, the divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. In other words, they felt guilty not supporting Barak, but they still didn't join in the fighting. He goes on, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. And then if you look down at verse 23, we have an example of a city militia. Now that illustrates not all militias were organized by clans. They didn't have to be. It was any grouping of men, just like David's grouping of men. But anyway, he says here, curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. I want you to notice that you can come under the curse of Almighty God when you refuse to be a part of a militia to defend tyranny when a magistrate calls you to do so. If we're not willing to fight against tyranny under a magistrate when there's a lawful, godly war that's going on, unfortunately, most of our wars are not, but if we're not willing to fight, we don't deserve liberty. People still quote Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. And yet they hypocritically want to disarm the people and they sh for sure are not going to be approving of the militias that Patrick Henry himself was promoting. Okay, it's schizophrenic. We cannot be more righteous than God.
And when God calls for militias, we are resisting God if we resist the right of neighborhoods to defend themselves. We cannot be more righteous than the Bible. Too many Christians back down on this subject simply because they're thinking like the world. Now, in my neighborhood, I don't think we could ever, uh, anytime soon, uh, you know, form a militia. Uh, I, I just don't think they would, they would go for it. But you know what? Um, uh, even though they don't have the mentality of Kennesaw, Georgia, there are across this nation counties and towns that are beginning to return to these old paths of liberty. Pray that they would grow. And it's my prayer that America as a whole would return to biblical law, to being one nation under God, gladly embracing every aspect of God's law, including this use of militias. May it be so, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. And it is our glory to affirm every aspect of your word, no matter how controversial it may be. And I pray that this word would uh, spread far and wide and that magistrates and Christians uh, would uh, return to the old paths and would defend liberties instead of uh, defending uh, themselves and uh, their own interests. I pray, Father, that they would have servants' hearts, be servants of the people, not servants of themselves. And I pray, Father, that... uh, Uh, through uh, your bringing reformation to the church of Jesus Christ, there would be a thoroughgoing reformation uh, far greater than any great awakening that America has had before. We pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that you would defend this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.